Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Good morning. Again, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. I want to let all you dads know, if you are a father but you don't have a child in the classrooms, the children in the classroom are making a gift for you dads, okay? But we want to acknowledge you dads who have gone through it and have seen your kid pass the classroom and have lived to tell about it. We have a gift for you also. And so at the end of our gathering this morning, you can get those. They'll be handing them out at the back. Please make sure you get them. I've seen them. There are some neat little goodies that you can eat. We thought, what can we give dads that they would appreciate? Some food, right? Um, I saw the gift. I go, this is useful. I thought, this is great, you know, because what we're going to give you, duct tape? Well, we didn't know. So we got those little goodies for you guys, so please don't leave uh, without taking those. Um, I know that Father's Day, even like Mother's Day, although is a time where we celebrate, maybe you'll go have barbecue or do something with the dads today. There are some of you who have lost your dads. There are some of you who circumstances have made it so maybe you don't have a dad any longer. There are a number of things that happen. uh, And I know it can be a very difficult thing for you as well. And I understand that to some degree. I might not be able to feel all the emotion that is there. A friend of mine Son committed suicide three years ago now, and he wrote this, and I just wanted to share it with you. It says, Father's Day, and it's entitled, I Don't Think That I Will Ever Get Over. I don't think that I will ever get over the death of my son. I don't think I will ever get over that feeling that I have to be here for Ethan. I don't think that I will ever get over that feeling that somehow, in some way, that I wasn't, that I missed something. And I know that I will always be one phone call away from knowing a very different present, one in which Ethan is alive and I have a much different set of problems to deal with. 
I don't think I will get beyond that fear of losing someone else close to me. And I don't think I will ever stop wondering if my life is somehow supposed to be very, very different. And I will always wonder what his life is like in this other reality where Ethan is alive and graduating college and living the whole rest of his life. And I get to watch. So Father's Day is upon me again. Father's Day. It's heartbreaking because Father's Day is supposed to be a day of relationship. And to hear someone who's lost that relationship, it helps us to appreciate the importance of what that relationship is. And this morning, I I do want to talk about something not directly towards Father's Day, but something that I think is an important thing to understand when we look at who Jesus was or our example of what a father is to be. And Jesus was someone who actually empowered others. And I think that's what makes a great dad. That's what makes a great person, is a person who is able to actually empower other people that thinks of others more than they do themselves. I think that's the idea of what a father is supposed to be. I remember I stopped watching sports on TV for years, not because I didn't want to, but because we had to watch cartoons for sanity's sake, right? I can't watch the game. The house will go in chaos. And so... There goes the Lakers, there goes the Dodgers, here comes Animaniacs or whatever it was at the time, right? All these things, it's just part of what you do. If you're a dad, that becomes, I have to give this to them because that becomes more important. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Now, this morning, I'm going to talk to you about slavery, how to pay your bill at restaurants. Uh, genealogies and segregation, stereotypes and boundaries, and deja vu. Okay, so let's go. You know, one of the biggest criticism against the church in America was how it was so slow to respond against slavery back in the day, where although there were a few followers of Christ who really uh, were at the head of the abolitionist movement, it took society 1,800 years and the church even longer to get over what this was, which is an assault on the humanity that God created. And now for us, looking back, we look at this and we say, that's awful. That should not have been the case. Why did that happen? How could that happen? And really, the reasons have to do with power, wanting to maintain control, had to do with economic status. What will we do if our labor force changes this drastically? It had to do with fear of the change, and it had to do with a narrow view of Scripture. You see, Scripture was actually utilized in the churches at that time, to support slavery. Passage like 1 Peter chapter, or Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. 
And so you hear a scripture like that and they say, see, it's okay. And one thing that we need to understand that Jesus made really clear is anytime that you use scripture to take away the well-being of others, you are violating the heart of God. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus said. And anytime you're using scripture without the character and heart of God, you are misusing it. And so we need to be careful not to have a blindly following something without it being connected to what we know is God's heart, what we know is God's concern, and what we know is God's love. You see, the mistake is that they looked at this scripture and they interpreted it as if they were still under Roman rule and authority, and they weren't. They had the rule, they had the authority, and they held on to something that was detrimental to human beings. And shame on them for not seeing that and not seeing the heart and character of God. Because greatness, according to Jesus, is when we see others as more important than ourselves. And that included the Gentiles, it included slaves, and it included women. Whenever you go to a restaurant and there's a group of you and you have to pay the bill, I remember that used to be just a, a difficult thing, right? You go, okay, and then someone gets their calculator out and they start adding up all these things, who got what, and if you didn't get separate checks, how are we supposed to do this? I've been going out with some friends and there's a whole other way to do this that I was not privy to, that all of a sudden I've become aware that's pretty commonplace for younger people. So you who are my age, listen up. When you get the bill, hold on, I'm getting a phone call. Uh, Okay, when you get the bill, you get your items and you put the last four digits of your debit card after the items that were yours. You hand it to the waitress, waiter, And they will take it and they will charge those things and give you the bill with your card for that amount. Simple, right? And then it's done. My wife always say, you know, do you have cash? It's like, no, we don't use cash anymore. (laughs) Cash makes it more difficult. We just get the numbers and write the numbers. There's a whole new way of doing this. And sometimes if you don't do things that way, you throw a whole mess into the loop. It's like, here, I got... $20, but I need $5 cash, and everyone's got plastic, right? How do you do this? Have you ever wondered how Jesus and the disciples paid their bills? Anyone? No? Not that interesting? Okay, one person. Turn to Luke chapter 8. I think this is amazing. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 1. It says, soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Tuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them 
out of their means. Okay, first of all, he says the good news of the kingdom of God, this kingdom is coming into play. There are 12 disciples that's mentioned because it's very figurative to the 12 nations of Israel. Remember last week we talked about how John 1.1 really mirrors Genesis 1.1, but what's happening is God is doing a new creative work here through the person of Christ. And now we see the 12 disciples. This is what God is doing, this new Israel. He's calling Israel back to her roots, back to her mission, which is through her, all the nations will be blessed. And then we see this, that these women provided for them out of their own means. They paid the bill. When the check came, the lady said, I've got this. Now, This is pretty outstanding in this time, in this society. And one of the keys we have to this is this one woman named Joanna, who's the wife of Husa. Who's Husa? Who is Husa? Husa is Herod's household manager. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one we've read about who had all the children killed for fear that this new king was going to be born. Herod the Great had control over all these provinces. He had three children and gave away the provinces to each of these three children. One of them didn't do very well, and so another person had to be given governorship over that area whose name was Pilate. Right? We know that. But this Herod that's talking about here is over Galilee. He is the most powerful man, most wealthy man in the area. And his manager, his name is Husa, which meant Husa had to be pretty well to do as well. Because he's managing the most powerful man in the region's property, money, things, horses, whatever he had, homes. He is the manager for Herod, so you know he's pretty well-to-do. Well, what's who's his wife spending his money on? Nordstrom's. Of course, no, it's not. She's going to help out an itinerant preacher who's traveling with these young fishermen and tax collectors and these ladies who used to be possessed And she's flipping the bill for them. Now, what's really amazing about this is in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, get away from here, for Herod is trying to kill you. You see, Jesus is talking about this kingdom of God, this kingdom that's not built on power, this kingdom of God that's not built on this authority ruling over others, but it's really about equality, it's about love, it's about giving, it's about caring. But it's a kingdom nonetheless, and Herod wants to kill him. But unbeknownst to Herod, his manager's wife is funding the whole thing that's happening right now. Is that great or what, right? You've got to smile right now and say, that is so cool. And what's taking place is that we are seeing something new happen as this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in 
is starting to change and usher in how things are done. This kingdom, again, isn't built around the rich and oppressive. This kingdom is built on compassion. This kingdom is built on solidarity with those who are suffering. And it's elevating those and giving them a voice like the women. The kingdom is very inclusive. And you've got to wonder what some of those conversations were like when they would travel and the ladies would get together in their hotel room and talk. They probably didn't have hotel rooms like we do, right? But what would Joanna say to Mary who had seven demons in her once? So what was your life like? Well, I got a story to tell. You know, she's taking off her, you know, Gucci, whatever, and her, you know, purse that cost a thousand dollars. And she's with these people who are really, you see, she saw something more, wanted something more than what she had, even though it was so affluent. And so this kingdom now is including her, it's including Mary, and in fact, they are a part of it and they're building it very much so. This ministry brought to you by Mary, the one with demons, and Joanna, the wife of Husa. You have them to thank for, for supplying the needs for Jesus and his disciples. In the Old Testament, when you come across genealogies, you'll have a list of all these names. And genealogies are kind of how we move through transitions of time or events a lot of times in Scripture. But one of the things you notice is they're always men. So-and-so begat so-and-so and who begat so-and-so. And it always gives the men who were there because that was the prominent patriarchal society and that's who was considered important. In fact, when they would get together in synagogue, one of their prayers would be, Lord, I am blessed that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was an actual prayer. That they were thankful to God that they were not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And the woman's response was, I'm thankful I'm made as I am. It's like, you got to give me something, right? And so we're starting to see that this is the society, this is the tradition that they're living in. Now we come again to this new kingdom and we see the genealogy of Matthew and we see five women are involved. Not only are they women, but they're also Gentiles. You you see, we start to see them moving past this. We see women traveling with Jesus, paying the bills. A very famous story in Luke chapter 10 is that of Martha and Mary. And and I've always heard, and there's an element of truth here, you know, Martha was the busy one, but, you know, Mary was the meditative one, and there's a place for busyness, and there's a place for this worship and meditation. But really something more is taking place in that story. And if we lived at that time, or if you even were in the Middle East at this time today, and you read that story, you would know immediately what is going on. When it says that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, it wasn't that she was there just kind of, oh, I'm adoring you. At the feet of someone is what you do when you are learning. 
Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, we learn in Acts. It's what a student does. And you see, the reason Martha is probably so cross is because Mary has crossed a boundary you don't cross. You are a woman. You don't get to be a student of a rabbi. Get in the kitchen where you belong. And Jesus says, what? Leave her alone. She has desired something that is more meaningful. Do you see what's happening? This boundary that has been established is being broken down. And now Mary is able to sit at the feet of Jesus and to become a student, breaking the boundaries. And that's what really ticked Martha off. I'm sure she was bummed too because there's a lot of food to prep. You know, you're always bummed when someone's not helping you. But see, something more is taking place in this story. We in our society don't see it as clearly because we don't sense those boundaries. But it would have been really understood back at that time and still would be understood in Turkey and other places in the Middle East today to read this story and understand what is taking place. And the reason I share this is because we're beginning to see this inclusion Throughout, And it's ushering in this new kingdom where women get to be included. Now, some of you are saying, well, like, yeah, of course they should, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. They were all together. They weren't separated any longer. They're all meeting together. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams, even on the male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. They will proclaim. Women are now included in the proclamation of this kingdom, of this good news. They are included and are meant to be carrying this forward. We even see women that are included in the persecution that starts to take place in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Most of the time, the women would be left alone because they were seen as not to be involved, but for some reason they're included, most likely is because they are actually involved. In Acts chapter 21, verse 9, Philip the evangelist had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That means they proclaimed. And again, get in your mind this idea of prophecy isn't like, thus says the Lord, I'm going to tell you tomorrow the, you know, Dodgers are going to win. I don't even know if they're playing. But that's not what they're talking about. It's talking about proclaiming something that's true. And the women are a part of this. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. And the word servant is the same word that's used for a deacon. So she's a deaconess of the church of Cantrea. She is a leader in the church. Paul goes on and tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male 
and female. He doesn't say male nor female or female because there is a male and a female. But what he's doing is breaking down this distinction. There is all one in Christ. He's not eliminating their sexuality. What he's doing is unifying the family. See, circumcision used to be the mark that said we are separate, we belong to God, and that was only for men. And now it's baptism, and that belongs to everybody. You can no longer pray, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. Why? Because Gentiles belong to this family. I thank God I'm not a slave. You can't say that. Why? Because they belong to this family. Thank God I'm not. Why? Because they belong to this family. And we sit here looking back and we say, wow, well, that's great. But we have no idea how it revolutionized society. That we are standing here because of what took place there. Now, there are other women who took places of prominence even in the Old Testament. We have Miriam, we have Deborah, we have others who took positions of prophets, but we're not seeing it like we are in the New Testament. It's starting to take off. It's starting to spread. It's starting to grow at an an incredible rate. You know, it's hard, though, to break stereotypes. It's hard when you're conditioned to a way of thinking and it becomes norm for you. I have an old ad that is pretty disturbing when you look at it. Rick, can you put that ad up? There it is. Show her it's a man's world. <laughs> there are some other ones. You can take it off now, Rick, before they throw things. There are some other ones that are amazing. You start seeing these things and you think, gosh, this is terrible. She's on her knees serving him breakfast in bed. Like, what's going on here? And and these stereotypes are are so difficult. See, I, I have friends who are teachers with master's degrees who have gone to church and have heard sermons how women can't teach. And she commented on how bad the person who was teaching was teaching, but she can't teach? And do you see how it's so hard to follow after a God who sees people so small? And I know that there are a lot of churches that do allow women to teach, do allow women to pastor congregations, but there are still a lot, mostly in the United States, who do not. And then people see this and they say, wow, Your God restricts women who have intelligence, who have abilities, who pay the bill, but they can't participate in this way. And they ask why. Remember that question I said, whenever we see scripture and it starts to bring oppression instead of liberation, we need to see, is this the character and heart of God? Is this what's taking place? It's disturbing to see these things. And once again, we see that some people have a hard time accepting what is being presented because it's just too small for the world that they see and live in. And I think like slavery used to be, many are offended by what is being presented as what God's will is. 
and I, I want to talk about this a little bit more. You see, in the resurrection of Christ, all the men were hiding. One of the requirements to be an apostle was to see the risen Lord. You had to see Jesus. That qualified you to be an actual apostle. And the first ones who saw Jesus alive were women. They were the first apostles. They are the ones who testified. They were the apostles to the apostles. And it's amazing how significant this would be Women weren't allowed to testify in court, yet God reveals himself to these people to be his testimony. He entrusts the care of this kingdom to women, but some will not let women teach. And some people think, that doesn't sound right. That that sounds a little troubling. What's even more troubling is what people do to hold on to a position See, there's a verse in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. And this verse has caused such a stir that translator actually changed the passage to make it fit what their traditions and beliefs are. Because in this passage, what's being said here is that there is a woman named Junia and that she is an apostle. But because that did not go well with some of the minds of the translators who happened to be men, they changed the name Junia to be the name Junius, which is a man. It's not in the text. There's no way you can get that name out of this name. The only way you do it is say, well, they must have meant this. And so the New American Standard translates it this way. Greet and Drononicus and Junius, not Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. They changed the name. They also was done in the Berean uh, translation of the Bible, the King James 2000 translation. There's a number of translations that can't deal with the fact that there is a woman apostle that they changed the name to make it a man. Who's Junius? We don't know. There is no such guy, but we know who Junia was. She was one of the first apostles before Paul. But we won't acknowledge her because then we have to acknowledge all kinds of things. Other translations, even the English Standard Version, which is the version I use, they change the wording. They don't change the name. They say, greet Andronicus and Junia. They get the name right. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles. See, they change it to mean, oh, the apostles know who they are and they were in Christ before me. Well known among the apostles is the translation and it does not mean known to the apostles. It means they were apostles and they were well known. And before Paul. See, this is like deja vu all over again. I will take a scripture and I will take it to mean what I want it to mean in this circumstances. Yeah, slavery is cool. Yeah, the Bible talks about that. We can have that. We will take something. We will change it. Why? Because it's forcing me to deal with 
something that is not normal for me that is pushing me out of my comfort zone. But we got to talk then. What about those passages? And there's a few of them. I want to tackle what I think is probably the most difficult, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. You can turn there if you want while I'm talking about it. First thing we need to understand is where is Paul or where is Timothy when Paul is writing to him? And we believe that Paul was in Ephesus or Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul was writing to him. One of the main things we know about the religion in Ephesus is that the main religion, the biggest temple that was there in Ephesus, it was a famous shrine and it had only female priestesses. It was the cult the temple of Artemis, which the Greeks named and the Romans later called Diana. Okay, it was a massive structure. It dominated the area. And all those who worshipped in that time, they worshipped a female deity. And the priests were women who ruled over and kept the men in a place. They had the authority in that region for that place of worship. The women were in charge. Okay, so I imagine a lot of ladies moved there. See, some of your ladies can go, yeah, about time we got a place. Okay. So that's the context that Paul is writing to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A lot in this passage, and I don't have time to go through the other passages, but I hope I can break some things down in this one to, again, try and get us to understand the heart of God and the clarity of what's taking place. The first thing and the key to this passage is to recognize that women are commanded that they are, or it is commanded that women are allowed to learn. Notice it says that in verse 11, let a woman learn. She is allowed to be a part of this learning process. That's what we saw with Mary at the feet of Jesus. That's what we saw throughout Jesus's work. She is allowed to be a part of this learning process. And so that's one of the number one things that we need to say is that it really is about her having the ability to learn. And when it says in all submission, Automatically, it's assumed the submission is towards her husband or towards a man, but it could actually easily be interpreted her submission towards the Lord, towards her learning, towards the gospel message. So the submission is not directed towards a man, but it is in our minds because we've heard it so many times. But it's really not the case here. It's not directed in that way. Then crucial to the verse 12 is... When it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or hold authority over a man, the translation, which has caused a lot of difficulty, 
can equally mean in this context, I don't imply that I'm now setting women up in this new authority over men in the same way that previously men held over women. Imagine this new faith coming on the scene where women are welcome into it to be participants. And then they have a small gathering that meets in a city where the main center of worship is women. And you start seeing these women empowered. It could easily be thought, okay, ladies, it's not like this. It's not like Diana. It's not like you get to control everything. So this idea of not teaching or having this authority over men, Paul well might be addressing that as well. We have to take this in context with all these passages and things that we've heard. If women are prophets or women are able to prophesy, if women are deacons and leaders, if women are apostles, if 1 Corinthians, even though 14, it says women are to be silent, first in chapter 11, it says they're allowed to speak, something more must be taking place. Something more is going on, and we need to understand that, that he's trying to get them to understand their place in this culture that they're in, but it does not mean that he's telling them that they can't speak at all or not take a position of leadership because already we've seen that they are. Why then does Paul finish with this explanation about Adam and Eve? That's the one that really gets me. Remember this basic point. It's to insist that women too must be allowed to learn and study as Christians and are not to be kept unlettered, uneducated. They're not to just be put aside, go do the, you know, cook the meal or whatever. The story of Adam and Eve makes that point very well because Adam and Eve were participants in this. God spoke to Adam and told him what was required. Eve was unlearned in what God required. And Adam was the one who transgressed from what Eve did because of her ignorance. That's, again, a possible understanding of what Paul is doing. Paul doesn't see childbirth as a punishment. Rather, he offers an assurance that though childbirth is indeed difficult, painful, at least I hear it is, um, dangerous even at that time especially, it's not a curse which has to be taken as a sign of God's displeasure It's actually reversing the curse. Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage in the message says, I don't let women take over and tell men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Adam was made first, then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, with Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness, gathering it all into maturity. You can depend on this. Why am I talking about this? Why do I bring this up? See, I want to be like Jesus. I want our community to be representative of Jesus. And I do not see the character of God as revealed in Christ being one that quenches or stifles a person's ability just because 
of their gender. I see the opposite being revealed in Scripture. And the passages that have caused so much trouble, I think, have a lot to do with the traditions we've grown up in and how we've looked at them, just like it was formerly with slavery. See, if we are going to move this kingdom forward, then we have to be inclusive. And for some reason, I feel like the church always rebuilds the walls that Jesus tore down. And I believe that this is one of those areas. And so what I want to see is I want to see us have a community where if you're a woman and you felt like, oh no, I can't step into that because I'm a woman, that you don't let those things hinder you, that you have the green light from God that you can move forward. I want to see all of us involved with the work that God is doing. And I believe that a woman has as much right to speak and to teach and to lead as a man based on my understanding of the scripture. I say this because I didn't always think this way. And I didn't change my way just because, well, yeah, I want to think this way. This is what I see throughout scripture. This is how I see the character of God. We've been entrusted to continue the liberating work of Christ. Are we going to hinder half the population because of tradition, misinformation, and gender? Are we going to stop the work of the kingdom that God started to build where Jesus was ushering them in and saying, come on, you're a part of this now. And we're going to say, no, 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 no. You can't be that much a part. And the reason I wanted to say this on Father's Day because it's been men who have traditionally held this position and been the ones who hold the power and control. When we see who Jesus was who had all power and all control, what did he do? He empowered and gave them the ability to have a voice He revealed himself to them. He let us know that this was his heart and this was his character. Now, I don't have time to go through all the other passages. My point of this talk wasn't to try and talk about every one of these things. I took what I believe is the most used one and the most difficult in some of the translations to try and show how this could mean something totally different, just like Ephesians meant something totally different about slaves than what it should mean to us today. I think the same is true of this passage. And if we fail to do this, we are not liberating, we are hindering. I want you to be here, whoever you are, to know that the one who is setting the flag ahead for women, for men, for Gentiles, for anybody, is Jesus. And he's putting that way ahead for us to run to You can set the new agenda because you've been set free in Christ. There is neither slave, Gentile, male, and female. We are a family in Christ. Let's live that way. Let's pray. Father, it's so difficult when we talk about things that have been a part of our tradition for so long to see differently. 
And Lord, I don't expect people to believe just what I believe, but I hope this puts curiosity to start to learn and see things, how they can be different, how there is a whole nother conversation that's taking place maybe than the one that they've heard. And Lord, what my desire is most of all is for every person who comes into this place, whether it's a man or a woman, to see that they have been given not just the potential by you, but the freedom to use that potential fully. Lord, I pray that we would not hold anyone back, that we would not limit what you desire to do in a person because of their ethnicity, because of their gender, because of their social status. God, that we would recognize what you have done, the walls that you have torn down, may we not rebuild them. Lord, I pray that these things will stir our hearts to be a stronger and a better loving community. And I do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. First of all, I want you to know if you have questions and would like to talk to me more about this, I am more than available. I'd love to talk to you about this, okay? I I don't say these things lightly and don't say them not knowing that there have been people who have heard and learned things differently. If you've come from a Calvary Chapel background, I know that they do not allow women to be pastors. However, I also know that Chuck Smith ordained a woman pastor that most people don't know about. So I'll throw some things, you know, just to let you know that there's a lot going on. But I'd love to talk to you more about this. But more importantly, may you go in the freedom that God gives. May you understand that he has called us to liberty, that he wants to use you, whoever you are, wherever you are, And today, guys, let them pay the bill. God bless you guys. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.